I told my dad when I was 12 years old, stupid 12 year old says to dad, I know Bill said he was gonna win the race for the family and he didn't. I said, someday I'm gonna win this race for the family. And that's what stupid 12 year olds say because they're watching Brian's song on TV and they don't know reality. But by the time I was 24 years old, I knew what I had the ability. I'd run 40,000 miles in training. And I was still living at home. I lived at home for a couple of years after college. My parents encouraged me to come home and they knew what I was trying to do. You know, work at a running store job and try to get as good as I could as a runner before I turned 30 and went on with real life. But that morning, before going to the starting line, I knocked on my dad's door and I said, be at the finish line today. And he knew what I meant by that. And he was, you know, the 69 year old man with his Washington football team hat on, tears running down his face. He was at the finish line. Hello, podcast world. Welcome to episode 49 of Run Chats with Ron Runs NYC. Close your eyes and imagine what you dreamed of as a 12-year-old boy. Hitting a walk-off World Series home run? Throwing a game-winning touchdown in the Super Bowl? Winning an Olympic gold medal? Mike Spindler dreamed of winning the JFK 50-mile ultra. Inspired by his older brother, Bill, he ran his first JFK 50 at age 12. Hey, Dad, can you please sign this permission slip? Mike finished in 14 hours and 19 minutes and was mind-boggled that someone could complete the race eight hours faster, Elton Horst, in six hours and 15 minutes, and proceeded to tell his dad, one day, I'm going to win the JFK. And when did he did? In an epic duel in 1982 with Paul Jost and Bill Lauder, running 5 hours and 53 minutes and 5 seconds, setting the course record that would stand for 12 years. Mike came back and defended his title in 1983, joining the great Max White as the only repeat champions. In this episode, we discuss the history of the JFK 50, Mike's quest to win, meeting mentors Buzz Sawyer, Coach Greg Shank, who profoundly influenced him training and racing with Terry Baker. Mike brings us out on the course for the 1982 Boston Marathon, a.k.a. the Duel in the Sun, where he ran a 2.28 and shared amazing tales about that legendary weekend where Salazar famously held off Beardsley. Coaching Susan Graham Gray, a blind mom of three, to an Olympic trials marathon qualifier. Lessons learned as a race director, coach, sharing and paying it forward for the next generation as he was taught. Mike has lived a huge life, making enormous contributions as an elite athlete, race director of JFK since 1993, and a coach in his beloved community. This episode is about gratitude, paying it forward for the next generation of runners as Mike was taught by his mentors, William Buss Sawyer, Coach Greg Shank. Mike is a gifted storyteller with a remarkable memory and a passion for life. I hope you all enjoy this month as much as we did. So let's dive on in and take a listen. Good morning, Mike Spindler. Welcome to Run Chats with Ron Runs NYC. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Ron. Good to be with you. 
Yeah, it's great to see you through that Zoom screen, man. We're having some standard tech challenges, man. You know, we got to like do a little voodoo. <laughs> we got to reboot and, you know, maybe like wish the technology gods a little favor for us because we're old school guys, man. We're not into all this new crazy tech, but we got it all worked out, man. You're on the screen. I see you. You see me and I can hear you, man. It's all good. Well, I tell you, I get by with a little help from your friends. My wife and my son, Jimmy, helped me out this morning. So it's good to be with you, Ron. Beautiful. Well, it's great to great to be with you. And for everybody from home, uh, Mike Spindler is joining us today. Um, not only the two-time winner of the JFK 50, but now also the race director who's taken it over and, you know, really just taken the roots of this race and expanded it and brought, you know, super elite fields to the race. And I had the pleasure of getting the chance to run it last year and meet him and Devin and just all the amazing team in a COVID year where so many people backed away and really just were not able to put a race forward. And you guys kept your streak alive. You pushed really hard to put safety protocols in place and make it a safe race experience for not only the runners, but everybody who volunteered their ear. So I just want to say from, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for you guys continuing to dig in and let us get out there and race because it was, it was a pretty special day out there. Well, I appreciate your kind words, Ron, but it was a massive team effort. And, um, you know, we, we, we really brainstormed. We really cooperated with the government agencies and they appreciated what we were doing and they appreciate what we were trying to do. And, you know, it, 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 we pulled it off. Oh, hell yeah, you pulled it off. And, um, you know, for anybody who hasn't done the JFK like me for a first timer to get down there, I mean, what an amazing course. I mean, what, a, what an absolutely amazing course as a runner because you get the technical difficult stuff, you know, the AT, and then you get that fun hill running the hell out of town, which, you know, by that, I was barely even awake and I barely got to the starting line before the gun. And I'm like, what the hell is this? I'm not running up this friggin' crazy hill, you know? But then once you get onto the AT, it's like, okay, the party's on, right? Well, I try to tell people, you know, Buzz Sawyer, who, you know, God rest his soul, Buzz, this was his brainchild. You know, he laid that course out back in 1963. And his idea was to have as little on roads as possible because it was him and a group of athletes he was coaching. But when I look at that first five and a half miles, that's an event right there. That could be a challenging event. We're going to have a five and a half mile hill climb that's going to start in Boonesboro. It's going to climb almost 1,200 feet and then call, have the finish line there. But you got 44.7 miles to go from that point. And, you know, as you know yourself, that Appalachian Trail can be unforgiving at points. But but it's all come together. And it's just that, you know, I don't think Buzz realized the uniqueness of this course when he laid it out. You know, and I'm not saying it was dumb luck, but it was just this amazing thing he laid out, you know, from one town to the next, you know, highlighting all the fine really cool things of Washington County. Washington County is a tiny little place, but the Appalachian Trail and the Sino Canal, Sino Canal Towpath both go through our county. And he highlighted those two, you know, nationally famous sites in this event. So yeah, we're real proud of it. But I can't take, Ron, I can't take any credit for that. I mean, Buzz directed the event for 30 years before I took it over. And I basically, and one of the things that Buzz did want me to do is to try to maintain the course as close as possible to the original course. And we've done that. Yeah. Well, I love, um, you know, that you're bringing us all the way back to the roots because it was something I had down on my list of things that I wanted to make sure I asked you about. Cause I love, uh, you know, I like traditional things. I'm an old school guy and anything that tries really hard to maintain 
that integrity over time, to me, that has real value. It's, it's one of the reasons why I love the Boston Marathon so much, because I ran in the 100th, and now I'm getting ready to run in the 125th, and I'm, it's a blessing to God at 60. I can still do this, and I know you appreciate um, how awesome it is that you're still you know, crushing the miles on the bike and you know, climbing peaks, which we got to talk about in your trip back after the Olympics. But what Buzz did... You know, tell the story about how it came to be with JFK and, you know, JFK wanting to keep those things in place, like, you know, for people being active and healthy and fit and how the kind of race really more or less came to be. Well, you know, it's uh, kind of interesting to talk about that, Ron, with the Olympics going on. You know, JFK was very concerned about the overall fitness of our population. He wasn't concerned about our Olympic athletes. Like in 1960, like night now, our Olympic athletes were dominating. It was just, he was concerned about the general population. And the Surgeon General issued him a statistic that 25% of the adult population was either overweight or obese. And he was like very concerned about that. Not so much on how we looked at the beach, but, you know, it was the Cold War was going on. And, you know, are the Russians fitter than us? Could the Russians take us? And that type of thing. And that was his motive, really, is, you know, to get the population fit for national security. And they brainstormed this idea at the President's National Council on Physical Fitness guys of our age, we remember in going to school and trying to achieve that status, the, the, the patch that you would get if you passed all those tests, the number of sit-ups, the 600-yard run, the pull-ups and all that. So he was very concerned. And during that same period of time, um, he was a very big um, fan, I'll use that term, of Teddy Roosevelt, really admired Teddy Roosevelt's presidency. And he went back and looked at Teddy's presidency and he saw that he had required his military officers to be very, very fit. And one of the requirements was they had to be able to cover, they had to be able to cover 20, uh, 50 miles on foot in a 20-hour period of time to maintain their jobs, or else they got kicked out of the military. And he kind of now he wasn't really busting the chops of his, his chief of staff and the rest of his military guys, but he wondered out loud to them how many of my current military officers could still fulfill this requirement that Teddy Roosevelt required 60 years ago? And it, it leaked out. So the challenge got leaked out and it was meant to be for military officers, but it trickled down to the military, everybody in the military. And then uh, Time Life Magazine talked about it. And then the general public jumped on it. Before you know it, in 1962 and 1963, hundreds of these 50 mile challenges. They weren't foot races, they were hikes to see if you could cover 50 miles on foot within 20 hours. There was hundreds of them around the United States and on military bases around the world. They were as popular as the hula hoop. If you go back and Google it up, the two big fads of 1963 with a hula hoop and 50 mile hikes. Young people by the thousands were doing them all around the country and around the world actually. And uh, but unfortunately, when JFK was assassinated in November 22nd, 1963, most of those events were never held again. And by the end of the decade, I believe there was one in the United States. There was one in Europe still surviving. Well, the one in the United States, the one was Buzz Sawyer started in 1963. And it was just him. And he had a track club where he coached local track guys uh, in the off seasons. He would get these guys together from the different high schools. And they would train together and they kind of encouraged Buzz to do one of these JFK challenges because they wanted to do it. And when most of them stopped in 1964, they asked Buzz to do it again. And Buzz renamed it the John F. Kennedy Memorial 50 Mile Challenge. And that's how it all got started. And by the end of the 1960s, 
it wasn't just finishing the race anymore, finishing the course anymore. That was important was how fast could you do it? Could you break 12 hours? Could you break 11? And then Leo Henry in 1968 does the impossible and breaks uh, 10 hours. Uh, and then the, then the race was on, no pun intended, to see how fast. And then by 1973, you had Max White, who was an Olympic trials qualifier in 1972, and the national AAU 50-mile champion. He comes in and runs the course in five hours, 55 minutes, and 30 seconds. That was 48 years ago, and it's still considered a world-class performance to this day. Wow. What a fantastic uh, history lesson there of the race and how it came <laughs> to be. And also the JFK and the 50 mile hiking challenges, which I did not know about. I knew that it was kind of formed to kind of honor him, um, that that would take place. You know, this military guys had to kind of do that to stay in his good stead and, uh, you know, to prove their, you know, that they were healthy and fit. Um, but man, I'd love to see us put some more challenges to the the population today about our health, man, because I guarantee you, man, our, our numbers are probably a hell of a lot worse than they were in 1963. What do you think? Oh, they are. And unfortunately, Ron, it's really sad that it's over 60% now. That 25% in 1962 is now 60 plus percent. And I thought that was interesting with the Olympics going on. I'm a big fast. I'm fascinated by commercials during the Super Bowl, during big, big sporting events. I like to look at the commercials, especially the new ones. And one of the commercials, and it's for a medical product, it's for a medicine or something. And it said, yes, you know, but don't be fooled by the fact that our Olympians are probably going to win more medals than any other country. And they're going to do fantastic. It doesn't mean that we're the healthiest country on the planet. We are far from it. And, you know, anything that we can do. And I think Buzz Sawyer felt very, very strongly about we got to, there's elite athletes, world-class athletes to come to the JFK, but we get a lot of everyday people. And the greatest stories are the people who just nipped 13 hours. And, you know, and he, and he really wanted to keep the event alive for people like that. But that was their yearly physical fitness checkpoint. You know, I've got to keep myself in really good shape because they just called it the 50 then. They just said, because I've got to be ready for the 50. Got to be ready for the 50. And that was the local crowd. And it really was. It was very useful for, for the, you know, for and I would say just the weekend warriors, those people were trying to maintain a certain level of fitness, physical fitness past age 30, past age 40, past age 50. And, and it was, it was great for that. And I still think it is. I think to a certain point, we get people and they hear about it. And once they get past the enormity, now everybody, everybody in the ultra community knows about it and they're not intimidated by 50 miles, but people outside the ultra community, outside the running community. When they see the bumper sticker around town, JFK 50, and they find out what it's about, they guys, you've got to be kidding me. There's a 50-mile foot race in this county, and we still get people like that, Ron, who are locals. Um, one of our sponsors, uh, Todd Bowman, he had never done a foot race in his life. He was in pretty good shape, was, you know, did team sports when he was in high school. But in his late 30s, he was sponsoring the events in Bowman Trucking. They would help us bring goods in and that type of thing. And he looked at me and he got curious and he wanted to see if he could do it. And he didn't even know how to pin a number on. When he picked his number up, he had never been in a foot race before. And he didn't know what to do with the safety pins. And we helped him out with it. Well, tough as nails, he finishes the thing in like 12 hours. And last year, he finished the event for the 20th time. He's never done another foot race. Not a 5K, not anything. The only time he's ever pinned a number on him for the JFK. And for two decades plus, that's what he had to be ready for. And it really helped him as he went through his 40s. And now he's approaching age 60. And he's still doing it. His kids fell in love with it. 
His daughter won our 19 and under division last year. And there's all kinds of cool stories like that, that people heard about the event, somehow got involved with and just absolutely fell in love with. It happened to me too. I mean, I've been involved in the event since I was 12 years old. My, my 30-year-old brother comes to town and he'd been a standout cross-country runner and a miler for Catawba College. And he comes and shows up and he has a Sports Illustrated article with a little blurb in there about a guy named Baxter Berryhill who had won the 1970 JFK, had broken the course record, and he was here to try to beat Baxter Berryhill's record in the JFK. And I'm 12 years old watching this, my oldest brother, there's seven of us, and he's the oldest and I'm the youngest. I'm watching this 30-year-old guy train, and I got fascinated by it. And he was here to try to break the record. Now, it didn't work out so good for him. He leaned up against my father's Volkswagen bus at 48 and a half miles, collapsed, and they had to take him to the Washington County Hospital. And in the meantime, I'm walking along the course. It was a 15-hour time run back then. I think I was kind of basically kept looking for some, some place to drop out. I couldn't find anybody. So my father comes back from taking my 30-year-old brother to the hospital. He's in the back of the Volkswagen bus. And there I am on the road with about three miles to go. So my dad has somebody else drive. He gets out and walks along with me. And, you know, I'm 12 years old and I finished it. And I thought, okay, that's a pretty cool thing, you know. But the next year it comes around. The guys in gym class, are you doing it this year? You know, there's a lot of teenagers and stuff who did it back then. And it just got into your blood. And, and I'm not saying it's a blink of the eye, 50 years, but, you know, here I am, 62 years old, you know, the old <laughs> wrinkled up old man, you know, who's putting the race on. But it's still, we get so excited about it. The race staff and, you know, my, my, one of my sons did it a couple of years ago. I graduated college and player and the false light, I got to try. And he goes in there 12 hours and 34 minutes and, he, you know, and he got it done. You know, it's just people just fall in love with the event. They really do. That's some unbelievable history of not only the race, but you. And I had known the story of you um, running it at a 12. I read a great, uh, uh, there was, I run far profile done on you, which really dug into, you know, your history, you know, growing up as one of seven, being an athletic kid, playing all the sports, being inspired by your older brother, all that. So it was definitely on my list of stuff to get to, but um, I think it's just so, just shows you how different the world is today, because I have friends who ran the New York marathon at 14 years old, 15 years old, 13 years old, you know, you can never do anything like that today. But back then in the day, you could get a parental per permission slip sign by one of your mom or dad. You could con one of them. You could pretty much take on, <laughs> you could take on just about anything. So at 12 years old, dude, you're out there, you're taking on the JFK 50 miler. It's absolutely nuts. And then in the article, it goes on to say, you know, you just show up for like baseball, like a couple of days later. Well, no, it wouldn't have been baseball though. It's November. So it would have been football, but no, 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 it was. No, Ron, Ron, it was. Back then, it was an April event. It was April. It was either the last Saturday in March or the first Saturday in April from 1963 up to 1974. And 1974, still some people, and I have to agree, the worst weather conditions ever for the JFK. It was the last Saturday in March, 1974. It was 29 degrees at the start. It was about 27 degrees on the Appalachian Trail. It sleeted the trees would get covered with ice and they would lean into you. You had to like push the tree, um, the, the smaller tree saplings out of the way. 80 plus, I think it was 83% of the field dropped out. And that's when Buzz decided to move the race to the fall, thinking he could get more predictable weather in the fall and also to allow people better training. Instead of trying to train in January, February, March, they'd be able to train in September, October, November. 
So that's when it did change. So it was, I, I was limping my way to baseball practice on Monday afternoon. <laughs> I love it. And my coach was none too happy. I got to tell you, he was not very sympathetic. So, uh, no, no coaches were sympathetic back in that era <laughs> period of, sorry, didn't yeah. want to hear any excuses or no, what you ran 50 miles. Um, yeah, sorry, go, go do wind sprints, <laughs> go do suicides, go do pickups, go do whatever, but there are no excuses. Just go get your shit done, Mike. We don't, we don't really want to hear, but you ran 50 miles. Sorry, you signed up for it, man. That's not my problem. You know, you need to go play center field or whatever position you were playing. So I totally love it. Um, that's just completely bananas, uh, at 12 to be taking something like that on. And it's awesome. It's totally awesome. But what I love is you were well-rounded. You played all the sports as I did as a kid. And I just think you learn about team sports. You learn about so much more by being on all these different teams, being exposed to different coaches and different styles. And, um, you know, it's just wonderful for you to experience that. And then, you know, you start to have this like dream, which I thought, again, from the I Run Far article, which I love, which was written by Jessica Campbell. I'll give her a little shout out. Um, just started to have this dream of actually winning this race. And I want, rather than me tell it, I want you to tell that story because I just think it's one of the coolest things I've learned ever about before having a guest on that you actually had this dream of winning the race. So tell us about that and what that experience was like as a kid when you were growing up. Well, you know, I said, first of all, I would have never got involved in the event. Was it for my brother, Bill? So I have to thank him for that. And, and I looked up to him. I mean, you know, he, I saw his medals from college and, and he was good. You know, he was, um, uh, all conference for Catawba college and, and a good miler and half miler. So I, I idolized him. I was never very good at running. I mean, I, I, I didn't realize it then, but I was a slow twitch machine. So whenever we were doing the wind sprints, that kind of stuff, I was not impressing the coaches that much. But I got to tell you, it was, you know, once we started reading about the event, when he brought the literature to us and we were reading about this event and we'd seen the articles in the local newspaper, but didn't pay too much attention to it. And it was like really fascinating. And then Elton Horst won that 1971 event and he ran six hours and 15 minutes and 42 seconds. And I finished in over 14 hours. And I thought, how is it humanly possible for someone to cover that course? And my dad was telling me the stories. My dad had gone around a couple of checkpoints and seen him earlier in the race. And he said, he's never seen, he says, you've never seen anything like this. He ran like a deer through the woods. And I just had this image in my mind of this guy doing this. And later on in life, we became very good friends. That was 1971. Now I'm going to come back and tell you about a little more about 71, but you fast forward 16 years late to 1987. And at that point, I'd won the JFK twice in 1982 and 1983. I was trying to make a comeback. I'd had my Achilles operated on in January of 87, and I was trying to make a comeback. And the local YMCA had an indoor track that I used for sometimes my second run, running in the dark, if the weather was really bad. And I'm on this track, and I'm doing my second run of the day. And normally, I just zip around people at six-minute mile pace, and I just lap them over and over again. Nobody ever passed me on the track. Well, I get up on this track. And there's this gray-haired guy. He's pretty good shape. And I get in an impromptu six-mile race with him. It's supposed to be a shame. And I'm trying to run out. And we just go at it. And we go at it for six miles. And I finally could not shake him, finish off my run, go down and get a shower. And I come out of the shower to go to the lockers. And he's coming down the steps into locker. And we make eye contact. We never talked at all during a six-mile run. And he comes up to me. He goes, my name's Elton Hurst. What's your name? And I about collapsed to the floor. Elton Horst. 
who won the 1971 JFK 16 years earlier, who I did the math in my head is now 41 years old. I'm 29. And I'm like, and introduced myself and he knew me and we became instant friends. And we still laugh about today how we got in this impromptu six mile race on this little indoor track and tried to kill each other. And, but so he was my idol, Ron. I mean, after that race in 1971, and I did a little research and I knew he was from this local running club called the Cumberland Valley Athletic Club, which had some really good guys. They had a guy named Wayne Vaughn who had finished third in the JFK 50 mile. He'd broken nine minutes for two miles and some other stars. And Buzz Sawyer was coaching them. And like if Buzz Sawyer looked at you or shook your hand, it was like um, Vince Lombardi in our sport. I mean, he was so reverent. He was a former U.S. national team member ran for the USA, was undefeated an international tour, went to the 1960 Olympic trials, and then he was the guru who coached all these great runners. Well, Elton kind of became my hero, my idol, even though I never met him. I took that newspaper clipping and I kept it for all those years. And I wanted to be like him. And I really thought that if he did six hours and 15 minutes, I could do 6.15. And actually, as I uh, developed through my high school and college times, my track times were very similar to his. And I kept thinking, 615 is a realistic goal, 615. And when I got out of college, um, the, the Washington County record holder in the JFK was a guy named Greg Shank. And he was nine years older than me. And Greg was coaching some runners. He had learned from Buzz Sawyer. He had been like Buzz Sawyer's right-hand guide. And when Buzz was retired from di- coaching, he was still directing. But when he was not, Greg had kind of picked up the slack and became the next Buzz Sawyer. And if Greg Shank thought you had talent and wanted to coach you, my goodness, wow, that was amazing. Like if he returned your telephone call or if he knew who you were and I got a chance to meet him between the semesters, my senior year in college, when I was home for Christmas time, he was coaching a guy named Terry Baker who finished seventh place in the Boston Marathon. He won the Cherry Blossom 10 mile. He broke Frank Shorter's American record for 15 miles. Well, he was coaching Terry Baker and I knew Terry and I was doing a run with Terry and Greg Shank was there. And I ran along with him and he asked me what I planned on doing when I graduated in five months. And I told him and I said, uh, I'd like to try to win the JFK. And I'm saying this to a guy who finished in the top 10 of the JFK and held the Washington County record. And instead of telling me, hey, you know, maybe you should set some more realistic goals. He said, that's a very good goal. So he believed in me. And that was one of the biggest things, Ron, was that I didn't. It wasn't just a wish and a prayer. Now a guy who coached international level athletes thought I could do it. He thought I could run 6.15, and 6.15 usually won the JFK. So I started working with him the day day I graduated from college and came home. He was giving me day-by-day schedules, and I'm telling you, he was meticulous. I was six foot one, and I was 146 pounds, and he thought I could trim. And he thought I could trim down a little, okay? He thought that I could trim down. He was really into strength-to-weight ratio, um, and actually that summer of 1981, I dropped down to 139 pounds and I went to a little too far. We, we, we pushed it, went back to 144, 145. That was my optimum weight. I went, I took my mileage over hundred miles a week. I stayed there. I did speed work. He said, you can't win the JFK until you break 230 in a marathon. So we went to Boston in 82. That was the duel in the sun. I ran 228.18 on a hot day. And that's when he nodded and says, you're ready to do it. And we went from April to November, seven months of everything being planned out. And 6.15 was still the goal. Everything we did was pointing towards 6.15. And then I had some monster workouts. He had this workout that he 
borrowed, I say stole, but he borrowed it from the Russians, that the Russians did three times 20 kilometers, one at eight o'clock in the morning, one at noon, at one at 4 p.m., and they did them at marathon race paced effort. Each one was supposed to be faster than the preceding one. He, he, he tailored it down a little bit for Terry Baker and me to three times 10 miles. And he set up a goal for me to go 60 minutes, 59 minutes, 58 minutes. Uh, and without breaking my logbook out, I know I went 58 for the first one. I went 57 for the second one. I went 56 minutes and change for the third one. At that point, he, we re looked at goals. He says, I think you can break 605 and maybe six hours comes into the picture. Bill Lauder was the prohibitive favorite, 1982. He was the dude in ultra running on the East Coast. He's a Jersey guy, great guy, hard nose, all business. And uh, he was supposed to win the 1982 JFK on paper. And it was a guy named Paul Jost, who was like me in his mid-20s. Bill was in his mid-30s. And Paul was a 1430, 5,000-meter runner stepping up. I was a sub-15-minute guy. Was Paul was even faster than me. And we did the mileage and we had a different philosophy. We were taking speed and going up. Some of that hundred, some of the hundred guys were coming down and this was, they were trying to get fast forward. But in the race pack, I can remember going to the start line that day. And Greg said, be very, very careful. If you do everything right, you get in the top three. You know, we were thinking lauder to win. And we, Paul Jost, you know, was capable of breaking six hours. And then nobody knew much about me because I hadn't been back to the race since 1977. It had been five years, but it had broken seven hours when I was 19 years old and got in the top 10. So people who did their homework was like, you know, what's this kid at 24? He was sub seven when he was 19. So I'm in there and Greg had this thing about when I was fit, you know, I, I, I had very, <laughs> and my mother said I, have a, I had a, a face for radio. So maybe it's appropriate. <laughs> so anyway, my coach Greg would tell me when you were fit, the leaner you got, the uglier you got, the, you know, you more, your and I, you know, we took that with a laugh. But we're going to the start line that day. And he says, I've never seen you look so ugly. And, you know, most people take that as an insult. But he was like, he was basically telling me that you were ready. And the last thing he said to me, I was going to mirror Bill Lauder. Whatever Bill did, I was doing. And I was like, and it took the pressure off me. And he also said, just you're warming up for 30 miles. And the race starts at the Shepherdstown Bridge. 30.5 miles, 19. But he said, the race does not start to the Shepherdstown Bridge. And to this day, the athletes I coach in the JFK, I always tell them the same thing. Don't get too nervous. Don't too excited. Don't try to make up minutes on the mountains if you're not a trail guy. Just the race starts at the Shepherdstown Bridge. And that was the last thing Greg said to me. And I wasn't nervous. All of a sudden, the nervousness I had, there was no reason to be nervous. The race isn't going to start for hours. And typical carbo loading. And you don't warm up much for a 50-mile race. I think I might have jogged a half mile just to make sure my shoes were right and then double knot them. Well, you had the carbo unload someplace along the course. And hopefully a portable toilet was close by, but it wasn't. And Greg told me, and I followed Bill, and Bill was very good about this. He must have said his coach told him to shadow me. And I'm sitting right on him. From the gun, I just tuck in behind him. And um, there's a video up on YouTube, and we're coming through uh, the Gatlin Gap Age Station at nine point miles. And I'm right behind Bill. And Bill wants to know what the split is. And I call him this, tell him the split. And I just follow him like that. Well, on the second part of the trail, Mother Nature was calling. And I wasn't going to make it to the portable toilets at the, at the, uh, the aid station before the uh, towpath. And I did not realize that Bill had the same thing going on. So I'm like, where am I going to go? I'm supposed to. So Bill pulls off into the bushes on one side of the trail. 
I pull off the bushes on the other side of the trail. <laughs> we both take care of business at the exact same moment. And he gives me this look like, I know you were probably told to do everything I did. <laughs> so we both took care of Mother Nature at the exact same, probably 45 second period of time. Get right back on him. And I followed him onto the towpath. And he didn't know. He knew about my times, but he didn't know about the workout that I did the three times 10 months. That gave me this unbelievable. When, when Terry Baker did it, he knew he was ready to race in the top 10 of the Boston Marathon when he hit his numbers. When I did it, I knew that I had a shot to win the JFK. If I played my cards right and things played into place, I had a chance to break six hours and I had a chance to win the JFK. So it was three gods. And there we were going up the tote path. It was the three that it was supposed to be. It was me. It was Bill Lauder. In my mind, the three guys were supposed to be. And it was Paul Joss. Paul scared him to death. He was probably an inch taller than me. Long legs, track speed. I never ran 1430 for 5,000 meters. And I was afraid of his speed. And I wanted to be away from him before we got to the road because I didn't think I could beat him in a three or five mile foot race to the finish line. And I wanted to gap him. And I, I started moving at the 19 mile aid station just a little bit. I was taking my drinks on the run. Those guys were stopping for their drinks. I practiced it. You know, we were taking um, cups from fast food places and, you know, with the plastic lid and the straws. And that's what I did. Those would have my drinks in them. I would take it. And I would take a run and I drink just to keep more to stay in rhythm, more than to get a couple steps on a guy. But I got away. I got away at the 22 mile late station because they stopped and I got a couple of steps. And I'm cruising along 634 miles, just clicking them. And I'm feeling great. And my coach is very concerned. He was getting down on the towpath. He says he, pro- I, he had this thing about knee lifts, like almost like the Salazar shuffle. Don't start lifting your knees too high too early. And he actually got down like a, a guy looking at um, cement work or something. And he, I could see him on the towpath and he's watching my knees. And he said, be careful that I didn't lift my knees too high. So he kept my knees down low. And I finally got to that age, got to the Shepherdstown Bridge where I could start running hard. And at that point, he was like, okay, Sunday run, two hour run, go. If you got it, go. And I started opening it up. And I was thinking more, not so much about Max White's course record of 555.30, of getting a good enough gap on Paul Jost, so I didn't have to worry about him catching me down the stretch. So I got up onto the, the went to the 42 mile aid station and I was getting updates the whole time. And I said, if I got seven minutes on him, he's not catching me. If I got seven minutes and I had exactly seven minutes on Paul, six minutes at the finish line, he closed. I ran the road section in 56 minutes, Paul ran it 55. And it was the first time in JFK history, two guys had ever broken six hours in the same race. At that point, it had only been two guys. Max White did it in 73. Pat Gill broke six hours by a few seconds in 1976. And then six years had gone by before two, anybody else did. And me and Paul did it in the same race. And then Bill Lauder crossed the line in 603, his fastest time ever in the course. And he just said, he thought we were two young guys in our twenties who were going to blow up on the road. And we didn't. And, um, and it wasn't until really like six miles to go. As six miles ago, it's not there anymore, but there used to be a tree, a big, probably 400-year-old tree, big, ugly tree, we used to call it. And when I was getting there, Greg yelled at me. He says, he says make a big, ugly move, you big, ugly guy at the big, ugly tree. <laughs> and I got past the tree, and Buzz Sawyer, the race director, he's driving around, and Buzz yells to me, you got a shot at Max's record. you got a shot. You know, he's trying to 
coached me into breaking the great legendary Max White. I mean, he was amazing. He was top 20 in the Olympic trials. And here he was, you know, breaking the record of GFK that stood for nine years. So with two miles ago, I checked my watch. And I was still more concerned about cramping because everybody was saying, you know, you got it one. I'm going, I know I don't. I know if I cramp with two miles to go, Paul Jost is coming at 620 pace. He's going to eat me up. So it wasn't till a half mile to go and you turned on to sunset that I thought, okay, even if I cramp, I can hold on. And my coach's house, my coach lived 200 meters from the finish line. His house was 200 meters from the finish line. And when I checked my watch one last time in his house, I go, I can walk in here and still beat Max's records, you know? So it was a really fun day. My dad and my mother were at the finish line. I told my dad when I was 12 years old, stupid 12-year-old, because I said, Dad, I know, my, I know Bill said he was going to win the race for the family, and he did. And I said, someday I'm going to win this race for the family. And, uh, and that's what stupid 12-year-olds say, because they're watching Brian's song on TV, and they don't know reality. But by the time I was 24 years old, I knew what I had the ability. I'd run 40,000 miles in training. And I was still living at home. I lived at home for a couple of years after college. My parents encouraged me to come home. And they knew what I was trying to do, you know, work you know, and a running store job and try to get as good as I could as a runner before I, before I turned 30 and went on with real life. But that morning, before going to the starting line, I knocked on my dad's door and I said, be at the finish line today. And, and he knew what I meant by that. And he was, you know, the 69-year-old man with his Washington football team hat on, tears running down his face. He was at the finish line. So it was, it was a really fun day. And I can only imagine what my dad felt like because when my son finished in 2019, my lacrosse player's son, and we'd heard he dropped out. We'd heard that his legs ramped up and he, he didn't show up at one of the chips. And, and we were all prepared. Man, you tried so hard. That's amazing. A, a college lacrosse player going 38 miles. And the information was wrong. Then we heard he was in the last four miles. But he's in the last hour of the race. Okay. And the minister ticking away and 12 and a half hours comes up. I'm going, man, how close is he? You know, and then he comes up to the finish line and he had, I think he had 23 minutes and uh, like 12, 36 and change. And me and my wife, it was just like, just this magical moment of him finishing this race. And uh, I can just say, you know, the parents are getting involved with it, the grandparents, and it's, it's just magical. The finish line, you know. The finish line is just magical. It's great when the world-class guys come in, you know, you talk about their resumes and what they've done and the NCAA championships and Olympic trials and stuff. But those people in that, when it gets dark, and it's that JFK term, the heroes, the people who finish in the dark when it gets cold again, they start in the dark at 6, 30 in the morning. They went all day long. It gets dark again. And these a lot of these people aren't from the ultra circuit. They're, this is, their goal and gosh to watch them come over me, me as a, I announced the finish line now to watch those reflective vests come over that hill with 40 meters to go and you see them and they can see the finish line for the first time all lit up and these dreams are going to come true and I get teary-eyed and emotional just talking about it because it is magical you know people come out you know it's a little different last year because of COVID we had to get people out of the finish line as soon as they finished but in a normal year people hang around for hours and the locals come in because they know that's really cool. The countdown, the people trying to fight that beat that 13 hour cutoff, you know, it's magical really is. So much there, man. One of the best, if not the best running stories ever. 
uh, that you just told there about that race. You know, you took us out there, man. And that's what I always tell any guest whoever comes on the show, man. If you've, you've done an Ironman, you know, and you're in Kona, like take us out there, man, in the lava fields of the bike or Kailua Bay, the swim or, you know, running a Leahy drive. What's it like? I mean, that was just wonderful storytelling, you know, literally from the dream as a kid, you know, being so inspired by your older brother and his running, you know, credentials and what he had done, but just being, you know, meeting up with your idol on the track that day and seeing, you know, what times he'd run and saying, you know, I want to go for six hours or whatever, meeting your coach and having him believe in you, the three times 10 mile workout, you know, at eight in the morning, noon and four o'clock. I mean, that's just epic because you got to put the hard work in to ever accomplish a dream like this. And people just don't realize how much work it is. I mean, I remember reading again, going referencing back to that article. I know you were dropping 140 mile weeks and consistently hundred mile weeks. You're doing this three times 10 mile workout, which by the way, for anybody keeping score at home, you know, those are like 548 pace miles, 536 at the end. You know, maybe the first ones are a little closer, just under six minutes, but that's a monster aerobic powerhouse workout, strength building workout. And that's what that race requires. It requires enormous strength to be able to get through the AT, to get onto the gravel pit for 26.4 miles or whatever it is, and then to be able to run off of there for that last eight and a half miles, which is rolling. And you had it all planned out, man. You knew you had to get away from the 1435 guy. You knew you had to get a gap on him. You knew you had to get some space because otherwise it was going to be danger Will Robinson, man. So you got your gap. You got out there. Yeah, a little lost in space reference for people who aren't old that. enough, man. Warning, warning, warning. Will Robinson. Yeah, Will. man. You had to get away, man. It was like the robot gave you the warning. But I mean, that's just epic uh, storytelling, man. And, um, you know, what a what an unbelievable style of, uh, training that you put together with, uh, with Max. Uh, I'm sorry, not Max. Who was your coach's name? Greg, Greg Shank. Oh, oh, Greg yeah. Shank. Yeah. Oh. So he took you on and he believed in you, which is more important because, you know, most times at that age, when a young kid has a huge goal out there, most times people are just going to slap you down and say, you know, you're out of your fucking mind. This is crazy. <laughs> no, man, you're like, I want to win the JFK. He's like, yeah, that's a good goal to have. So, hey, he believed in you. He prepared you. Take steel in the Russian workout, which was 20K. You guys converted it to 10 miles. You know, it's right there. But I mean, that's just totally amazing. I mean, absolutely unbelievable. And by the way, your course record, 553, didn't it stand for like 12 years or, or at least it did, it did right? And, and it was a similar circumstance. Oh my gosh. I was the race director in 94. Oh my gosh. Eric Clifton was just uh, amazing, but he was getting chased down. Oh gosh. It was unbelievable. Two guys broke six hours again there. And Eric's mark, Eric's mark stood for 17 years from 94 to 2011. And, and since 2011 is when it's tumbled down, when these elite, and, and I'll get, you know, I hate when the old timers get together and they blame it on the shoes or the gels. Cause I'll get some guys say, oh, if you'd had those shoes and you'd have had gels and you'd have had this. You, I said, no, listen, these guys are just better than us. Okay. They're better than us and give them credit where credit is due. The guys who ran Boston and won it in 230 back in the 1930s. They didn't come along and say the guys in the 1970s and 80s were bums and they just got better shoes, or whatever. They're just better. They evolved with the sport. They got smarter. They and the thing Greg, Greg Shank did for me, and I do not win the JFK. So many things had to fall in place for me to win JFK. And it does not happen without Greg Shank. 
because I had the MO of always getting really, really fit and then getting hurt. And he was able to corral me and know when it was time. I'll never forget. I was going over to his house, Ron. He lived, he literally lived 200 meters away from the JFK finish line. So we, our runs, we'd go by the JFK finish line all the time. I would, I would visualize going across the finish line, throwing my hands up or leaning across the finish line in the close fish over and over again. And I got off work my shift and I drove over to his house to do this 10 mile run. He got off work at four. I had an afternoon break where I worked a split shift so I could train morning, train afternoon, work an evening shift. And it worked out better that way. So I'm driving over to his house and he could see the weary in my eyes. And he gave me $5 and there was a little restaurant where you could get a spaghetti dinner for $5 back in 1982. And he said, um, go get a plate of spaghetti, go home, take a nap. He said, no, no. I said, I need to get 10 miles to get my 120 this week. He says, no, listen to me. You have to trust me. He says, more important today for you to rest than you to run this 10 miles. And I would have never done that on my own. Never would I have said, no, training schedule calls for 10 miles. I don't care if you don't feel up to it. I don't care if it's anti-productive. I would have done it. And I trusted him with that. I trusted him that I did that. And I did that that day, feeling totally good that knowing that that was more important than running that 10 mile loop. And, you know, Greg passed away at Christmas time in 2018, uh, kind of unexpectedly. And uh, all the guys had benefited. Chris Fox, who made the world championship team, was over in Tokyo right now coaching Justin Knight, who hopes to win a medal in 5,000 meters. He coached Chris Fox. He coached Terry Baker. We get together almost on a daily basis, either texting, calling, or, or physically together. And he changed all our lives because we believed in him. He could read us. He was like that cook who knew exactly what to add to the recipe or take out of it. He was so, and he did it for the love of the sport. Wouldn't take a dime from us. The guys we were beaten were being coached by guys that they paid. And rightfully so. There's nothing wrong with being a professional coach. But Greg worked as a, he was um, an engineer for Mack Trucks, which became Volvo here in Hagerstown. And he wouldn't take a dime from us. Now, if we were getting free shoes from a shoe company, or if we were, you know, every once he would take free shoes from us. When he got inducted into the local Hall of Fame, I bought him a bicycle because like me, he kind of gravitated over the bicycle and, you know, to stay fit when running became a little more not challenging. And um, just the greatest thing. I mean, I said, Chris Fox is over there in Tokyo right now. And Chris said, I wish we called him Eddie. It was and we all gave him just like Eddie Haskell. Every morning, once in a while, he had a smart ass to him. So we called him Haskell. When he was in front of the camera in the general public, he was as prim and proper as he could be. But when he was trained with us, he was Eddie Haskell calling me ugly, and that, you know, that kind of stuff. And, uh, but he was just the best. And, I've, and we've tried to pick up. Chris coaches the Reebok Boston Track Club. I coach the Cumberland Valley Athletic Club, coaching really fun 18 to 20-year-old guys at Akerstown Community College. And we just have tried to learn from him and live up to him. But when we get together, it's like, you can't do it. You know, there's only one Roger Bannister, you know, there's not going to be another, but we do our best imitations of him. And we, and I rode my bike by his grave this morning. He, he's buried at the JFK finish line, which is so perfect. And I not to, I'm hoping I got a few more races in me to direct and a few more races to coach, but I did the same thing. I bought a plot there in the graveyard by the JFK finish line. It's kind of a little joke, Ron, with our race staff that I'm buried right at the finish line. 
So when people come in, if they have a complaint about the race, he says, well, you, you can talk to the race director over there go, for as long as you want. Go so, talk to Mike. He's, he's at plot number seven, man. Go, go air out your laundry over there, man. But I mean, I got off task a little bit, but it, I mean, people out there, you don't realize what a good coach can do. And I always tell them, whether it doesn't have to be me, but when I see post collegians come back to the air, I said, get yourself a coach. Even if it's somebody that bounce ideas off of, they are so, so valuable. And Greg had been there. Greg had been top 10 in the JFK. He had been, you know, six hours and 40 couple minutes when that was really fast. It's still really fast. Don't get me wrong. Okay. Um, and he was willing to share with me. I was telling one of my athletes yesterday, I said, who does that? He was 31 years old. Who takes the 22-year-old out of college to take your place while you're still in your career? That, that is just such unbelievable humanitarianism. I, to this day, that I, I, I don't know where that came from. It would have been very reasonable for him to say, no, kid, go find your own way. I'll start coaching when I'm 50. And the wheels have come. Um, amazing human being. And his wife who passed away two years before him. She's also buried with him at the finish line of JFK. She allowed him to do all this stuff. I mean, he didn't get a dime for it. She allowed us to be sitting in his living room, tying our shoes up before we went out and trained after he went home, got home from work. She allowed him to drive us up to Boston Marathon. We called it Big Blue, a station wagon, you know. You know, we, you know, people look at Terry Baker. Would you fly up in a charter jet? No, he went up in the back of Greg. Most of the races he went to was in the back of Greg Shank's station wagon, you know. So good stuff, great sport. And I'm just, I'm just so thrilled that the JFK, but you know, this, how I became the director, Ron, is Buzz Sawyer came up to me my, my junior Mike, year in high school. Can, yeah. you, can you give me one sec? Cause I want you to go through that whole story, but I want to come back to a couple of things on the coaching front. Cause sure, it, sure. It, it comes into some of the other storytelling that you had earlier. So for one, um, what a profound impact, you know, the man had. Um, you know, and not taking money, um, embedded in the community, 200 meters on the course, um, but sees in your eyes, sees in your eyes and tells you, you know, go take the plate of spaghetti, go eat. Cause you never, ever, ever, no hard worker, no grinder, no one who's ever had a huge goal in mind. We don't ever, ever tell ourselves it's okay to take the day off or to shut it down or to skip the second workout. We just don't, that's not in our DNA. But if someone tells you, it's like a blessing, man. It's like the Pope giving you, you know, you're good, Mike, you're good. And you go eat the meal, you recharge. You don't even realize how important that is. But I want to go all the way back to, you ran in the fucking duel in the sun, dude. You ran in that race with Beardsley and Salazar and like the hottest day ever. You rocked a 228. And that reminds me of Squires, man, because Bill Squires was literally coaching everybody. He was coaching every great runner. And it didn't matter. I remember Beardsley went back out on the course that day when it was like a blizzard, you know, like literally insane conditions. And he's like, no, I got to go get my workout in. So I think the coaches and this relationship they form with their athletes are just, there's something so sacred about it. And if you believe, you know, if you believe in them, obviously they have to believe in you. He believed in you. You told him from the beginning you wanted to win the JFK. All right. So right then and there, that could have been tenuous. It could have been like, hey, young, and let's, let's temper this a little. Let's make some other goals along the way first. But he believed in you. You believed in him. That relationship, when it's formed like that, there's a chance for greatness or at least you reaching your highest level. 
Okay. So, and I think Squires had a profound impact on so many runners, you know, in that Boston community and look at what he did. And you got to be part of that race, dude. I mean, that was epic, man. I mean, come on, man. You ran in the duel in the sun. It, it was really the duel in the sun. It, it, I just pinch myself sometimes because I've had this Forrest Gump like life and Terry Baker, who was my training partner, Terry was seventh in the duel in the sun. We were roommates, the Boston marathon that year. And he was running for New Bounce. And they were going to have a party over in one of the brownstones the night before the race. So Terry's catching a cab ride over to the party that New Bounce is putting on. Well, it's an and one. So he wants, do you want to go? My nickname is Pink. He says, Pink, you want to go? I said, you got to be kidding me. Absolutely, I want to go. So I go with him. I climb in the cab. And in the front seat is Dick Beardsley, who was running for New Bounce in the Duel in the Sun. And also Bobby Hodge. Bobby Hodge had been third place in the 1979 Boston Marathon. I'm sitting in the cab with these three guys. And I'm going, dear Lord, let some of this talent rub off on me for tomorrow. So we get to this party in the Brownstone, and Beardsley's talking to this elderly guy. I put two and two together. It's Squires. And Squires gave to him the painter's cap that he wore in the race the next day. He gave him that hat that night at the party. And that's when he got it. So I'm at that party, Ron, and I'm meeting all these amazing people. And, and I'm like getting so inspired for the next day. And I see an old guy in the corner, old guy. Here I am. He, I'm 62 years old. This guy is probably 58 or 59 years old at the time. And nobody's talking to him. And I walked over and everybody had a name tag on. And I walk over and read his name tag, Chris Brasher. I'm going, Chris Brasher who rabbited Roger Bannister to the first four-minute mile on May 6, 1954, who two years later won the steeplechase at the 1956 Olympics. He's sitting there. Nobody knows who he is. I walk up to him. I tell him what an honor it is to meet you. And I talk to him, and he's kind of like, wow, somebody here knows who I am. He was there because he had just become the race director of the London Marathon. And, of course, no, he was trying to get guys to consider running London in 83, so he was there. And I'm talking to these guys. And I walk back over to Terry Baker. He goes, who's that old guy you're talking to over there? I said, I tell you, that old guy has something but everyone in this room wants. He says, what's that? A freaking Olympic gold medal. And Terry looks at him like, that old guy? He says, yeah, he wasn't always old. In 1956, he won the steeple over in Melbourne. And it was just such a, and when I went back to the hotel that night, it was just, God, it was just magical. That I got to meet all these people, and I'm listening to what what Squires has to say to, to Beardsley. Actually, I had run against Beardsley, Beardsley in junior college four years earlier in Dewajak, Michigan, at the National Junior College Marathon Championships. Terry Baker had won the National Junior College Marathon Championships in 1974 as a freshman. Four years later, I'm out there as a sophomore, and my coach brought me out and was sitting in the hotel room the night before. He says, "What do you think you can run?" I says, I think I can run just under six-minute pace. I think I'm running 236. He says, that'll give you a chance for All-American top six. He says, but you know, um, if you run 540 pace, you're about 228, and you got a chance to win the race. That's what Terry ran. So I thought it was a suggestion that try to run 228. Well, I ran 228 four years later. I wasn't ready to run 228. So the lead pack goes through two miles and two flat, not fast enough. I take off. I bolt off. I start clicking 540s. I get like a two-minute lead and disappears by 13 miles. The whole pack was like I went from first to ninth in like three steps. One of the eight guys that went by me 
Dick Beardsley. Wow. He didn't win that day. Malcolm East won that day. And then a few years later, Malcolm East, I believe three years later, Boston, Malcolm East ran 211 and placed in the top five at Boston. But this, this was the junior college championships. And one of the screw ups along the way, one of those mistakes you had to make going out too fast. But that's Dick Beardsley had passed me in the JUCO championships in Dwajdek, Michigan. That was in June of 1978. Then you go, not even 48 months later, 46 months later, he's taken Salazar to the finish line of the Boston Marathon in sub 209. On a day when people got sunburned, I got sunburned that day. I still, to this day, people argue, what were those times worth? When Salazar and Beardsley took each other to death's door and broke 209, what were those worth? I mean, if it had been a 55-degree day with a nice little trailing tailwind that you normally get at Boston, what would they have run? Would they have run history's first 205s? You know, and I'm, I don't think that's too much of a stretch. You know, because Terry ran 216 that day, and 216 normally doesn't get seventh at Boston, but it did that day. And I ran 228, and I was beating 215 guys that day. I still like the joke with my buddy Jim Hage, who won the JFK in 2002 and was uh, eighth place in the Olympic trials. 10 years earlier, 1992, I beat Jim that day at the Boston Marathon. It's the only time I've ever beaten him. And I always like to remember, I says, I, whenever I see him, I go, ah, the only good race I ever had was at Boston in 82. <laughs> you know? But I mean, you know, what, what was, what, what, did, what would, what would Salazar and Beardsley run that day if it hadn't been the duel in the sun, but the, this, the, the first sub 205, but it was, it was magical. And I got to tell you, my coach, once again, Greg Shank, trying to get me light. My father and grandfather ran a bakery run. In Patterson, New Jersey, where I was born, they had a bakery. That's how my grandfather fed the family. So we ate a lot of donuts. My whole life, we ate a lot of donuts. I'm not real proud of that. And Greg would always look at me, are you eating donuts? I'd be going to a morning workout and I'd be eating donuts. So he promised me, he said, from January 1 to Boston Marathon, no donuts. I said, you've got to be kidding me. Can I give up beer or something like that? He said, no. I gave up donuts for Mar- January, March, and, half, and, and two-thirds of April, no donuts. I put a $20 bill underneath the sock liner in my racing flat. And when I crossed the finish line, mission accomplished, got my sub 228, 230, 228. I, I got processed the way they used to process you at old Boston, you know, before all the scanning or anything else. I got processed. I climbed over the barriers. And if you know, there's a Dunkin' Donuts right near the old finish line. When it finished in front of the Prudential building, it was a Dunkin' Donuts right across the street. I went over covered in salt took off my racing flat. These people looked at me and said, what is this guy doing? Opened the sock liner, pulled out this $20 bill that was drenched in sweat. And I told the guy, says, give me two of those chocolate-covered chocolate donuts. <laughs> and he put two of them in a bag. And he gave me, he says, congratulations, you keep the 20. And I, I went and I ate those two donuts, went back into my hotel room, the Sheraton right there where they put the elite athletes. Now, I was staying in Terry's room. Terry was sponsored by New Balance. I got back to the room that he had fixed the door. So I didn't need a key to get in. I walked in. I could see here the tub running, the water in the tub. And one of his sponsors at that time was Bud Light. Bud Light just came out in 1982. And I opened the door to the bathroom and I see he's holding the Bud Light. And I'm thinking, oh man, it went bad. He dropped out. And I got to, you know, I, you know, I didn't know how he had done. And I got to, you know, maybe console him or so forth. I said, how'd it go? You know, just how you ask a guy. And he holds up seven fingers and I go, Pardon my French. You finished seventh place in the fucking Boston Marathon, and he held that. And he held that Bud Light up. <laughs> I went, oh my gosh, because I knew his life had changed forever. You know, by the end of the day, 
the Berlin Marathon runner was uh, the director of Berlin was trying to hand him a bag full of money. The Chicago Marathon director, Bob Bright at that time, was there trying to hand him an envelope to get him to commit. And what he did, he committed to Bob Bright. And this was the type of guy Terry Baker was. I had run the race of my life to run 228.18. I finished 123rd. So he tells Bob Bright, ah, this is my training partner. He had a really crappy day today. You know, he ran 228. He's a lot better than that. He says, if you give him an airline ticket and a hotel room, I'll come to Boston. I mean, I'll come to, New- uh, I'll come to Chicago. So he worked the deal to get me into Chicago on his coattails. Hell, I didn't have the worst race of my life. I had the best race of my life. But I ended up not doing Chicago because Greg thought it was best if I went full, you know, he didn't want me to run Chicago four weeks before, which was, you know, smart. So I ended up not doing that. But it was really just the the duel in the sun. It was just epic. I mean, the crowds were going nuts. They go nuts every year. And I'm kind of saddened that they put the barriers up now and they keep people back. Back then, they came right in on you. And just like the Tour de France, when they climbed the hills, they peeled away to allow you to come through. But you rode that energy. They screamed so loud. I asked Terry, I said, Terry, what was it like when you moved into the top 10? What was it like? He said, you, you couldn't hear yourself breathe. He says, you know, normally you, could, you kind of you know, test your breathing. Am I breathing too hard? Am I going on a rope too soon? He says, you couldn't hear yourself breathe the noise was so deafening when he was moving his way up to the top 10 at the boston marathon and even me back there at 123 is the same way it was just absolute craziness just nuts um just such a fun time in the history of sport you look at those names the guys that were up there bill rogers was fighting it out you know still trying to hold on to his day back then you know and um just just the glory days of, of u.s marathon running and now it's like they're coming back again I mean, Chris Fox is coaching two guys who broke 210 last year during the, the COVID year. He had two guys break 210, you know, and Colin Petty's going to um, Boston on April 11th. And um, Marty Hare, I don't know where Marty's going. I think Marty's going to Chicago this fall. But it's, it's beautiful, you know, to see those the, the guys from my generation who, were, you know, we don't really think we're that old until we see ourselves on a Zoom meeting or look in the mirror and you go, who the freak is that old man? <laughs> you know, but it's great that that we get the passes on. This morning, before I got forty couple miles in on the cyclocross bike, I rode over to the towpath. We were actually on the JFK course. I'm coaching these eighteen to twenty four year old guys. You know, some of them post collegiate, some of them junior college, some of them, you know, in college still getting ready to go back to universities. And it's the beauty of it is they believe in me. They 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 think I have something to offer them. You know. The, the old man who, you know, whatever, gets his senior discount at the hotels that we travel to. <laughs> we save a nickel whenever we can, you know, and it's, it's fun to, to see that. And, and whenever they, they know my PRs and whenever one of these guys breaks one of my PRs, I mean, we have a big celebration. You know, it's a real cool thing. You had a kid, an 18-year-old kid last spring run 108.47 for the half marathon on a really difficult course. And um, I'm saying, Iggy, you're, you can be so much better than I ever was, you know, and it's, and it's fun to see that, you know, uh, and I'm not give it's not the shoes to the old timers list. It ain't the shoes guys and it ain't the gels and it ain't the energy. There's some kids out there that are just remarkable. They can dig way deep into the pain tunnel. They want it just as bad as we wanted all those years ago. And I think some of them want it even more. That's awesome. 
I mean, you're definitely the first person I've spoken to that that ran and ran in that epic race, man. And the Duel in the Sun, I probably read that book at least a dozen times because oh my gosh. Um, I look at the pictures, as you said, and um, you know, it caused madness at the end because they just kept going back and forth at each other like the entire day at every moment. But there were, you know, the cars would come around, the police would try to hold people off and, you know, like they get cut off from each other and all of a sudden there'd be like a little bit more of a gap. But I mean, they basically did that entire race without taking any fluids, or at least I'm pretty sure Salazar didn't even drink at all. If he did maybe a cup of water and I think Dickie pretty much the same thing. So yeah, um, those performances, you know, you hear that a lot. Oh man, they they literally almost ran each other to death. I, I, I believe Salazar was issued the last rites. And God, how do you do that? I mean, the human brain has this survival mechanism that says, don't do what you're doing with these two grand champions. Gosh, it was just, I mean, the perfect storm. These guys were unbelievable. It was. I, mean, I got the line that day and I said, they ran what? They, I mean, because we knew that when, when Rogers ran 209.27, it was under perfect conditions. You could see your breath that day. You know, people were wearing gloves. It was just it was just unbelievable, phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, experience of a lifetime. And, you know, there isn't a, there's an ability um, just to just push past the limits. And he was read, Salazar was read last rights. I'm pretty sure it was at Falmouth though. Um, so he had a body temperature, like, you know, crazy high temperature that I put him in an ice bath. So he was just one of those guys. He was going, he was going to the end and Beardsley, it was all about what, well, what's he doing? What's Salazar doing? So they were going to just go toe to toe, like two heavyweights. But like you said, to be that separated from the rest of the great athletes who are all trained and fit for that day just shows you how much at another level that performance was. And it would be cool if we could plug it into some calculator and actually know those times were a 205 or a 206 or a 204, because in my mind, they were. Um, they they most definitely were. And I agree with you. I'm, I'm happy to hear you say it, because I say it all the time. Uh, people come back to me, dude, you're running 228 on that crazy day. My best Boston's a 241. And uh, 240 in Chicago. I didn't start running until my mid thirties, you know? So 36 was like my PRs and I was a college baseball player, but you know, my friends are all like, well, if you had vapor flies, you had jealous. I'm like, fuck that. That's bullshit. That's total <laughs> bullshit. Yes. No question. Some of my last five K's are where it unraveled for me, no matter how many miles I ran. And it was nutrition related. I know it was, but it's, that's what it was. I don't want it back. I don't want a mulligan, man. I ran and I pushed it in Chicago. I ran with a group of elite women for, that were all in the top 10 because back then, you know, a 240 for women would be around top 10. And I ran, you know, Carrie Pinkowski was the race director and still is. And I ran with a huge group of them and they all dumped me, man. They cut me loose. Like I was heavy with, you know, like a 200 pound dude with 5k to go. And they all just cranked those last 5k, that last 5k. Whereas I, I thought I was running eight minute pace or nine minute pace. I was probably running six fifties, you know, but it felt that bad. So to be part of any of that stuff is just amazing. It's totally amazing. Now, shifting away from your running or my little anecdotal story on my running, the coaching thing is just super cool. Um, 
And yeah, we're going to get to, we're going to save that for the end because we didn't get to your transition story of how you became the race director. And that's an, another amazing story because at a very young age, you basically, you know, say to Buzz like, Hey, I'll take this thing over for you when you're ready to retire. I mean, you want to talk about ballsy, man. It's like, what the hell? Seriously? I mean, how old were you when you actually said that? And it is, it is a true story, right? I mean, you basically said to him, Hey, I want to take this thing over when you're ready. Right. Yeah, but you, Rob, you have to understand this. I was so blessed in my life. There was a local running club in, in Hagerstown called the Hagerstown Run for Fun Club. They sponsored, they paid entry fees for me and Terry Baker and Chris Fox when we were coming up. And we watched these guys. These guys were 30 and 40 years older than us. And they reached back and they helped young people. And they showed us how to organize events, club level events, the basics of it. And I actually directed my first event a club level event. When I was in college, a college sophomore, I directed a 10 mile race that was on a college campus on a closed course, one mile loop. They did 10 times. So I directed an event when I was a college sophomore. And then when I got out and I was doing different things, um, at different races, I always got involved. I, I just, I thought, you know, it was like one of those things, this stuff just doesn't happen. I understood that someone had to make the sacrifices to get volunteers, to get permits, to buy the awards, to do the talk to sponsors. And I learned from a very young age. So I had a little knowledge of that, not to the extent of JFK, not the extent of JFK, but Buzz caught me at a weak moment. <laughs> Good timing. Good. And I had won the JFK for the second time in 1983. And I remember me and Buzz were sitting down and we were getting interviewed by a great sports writer named Phil Jackman from the Baltimore Sun. And Phil had actually done the JFK, loved the JFK. He would come up and cover it. We got incredible coverage from the Baltimore Sun, a major big city newspaper. And he's interviewing Buzz and he's interviewing me kind of back and forth. At that point, me and Buzz are friends. I've gotten to know him. He coached my coach and he was thrilled that he had a piece of a guy winning the JFK. More than a piece. He kept the race alive for 30 years through all kinds of difficulties. So I think Phil asked him something like, how many more years are you going to do this, Buzz? And I heard him, overheard it. And I said, Buzz, when you need to give this race up, you let me know and I'll take it over. I was 25 years old. Okay. I was a little hypogastemic. I was a little euphoric in the moment, you know, <laughs> you know, that, that I'd weathered the storm and got my second straight win. And I, and I was like, Max White at that point, we we're the only guys that ever defend our titles. And, uh, and, and not much became of it right away, but that was 1983. Four years later, he had a real health scare, and we thought he had prostate cancer. Luckily, it ended up not being. And I went by the hospital, and when everybody else left the room, it was just me and him. And his mortality was staring at him. And he looked at me, and he looked, are you ready? And I said, I'll do it. I said, I'll keep my promise. You know, you know, if you can't do this anymore, I will keep my promise. I was still competing. I had been fourth place in the um, 87 JFK, but I told Buzz, I will do what I have to do. And Buzz told me that, you know, at the, at the level the race is now, you can't do it. You can't direct it and race it. It'll have to be one or the other. So I was prepared. And then his, luckily his health held up and he did it through 1992. We decided that was the 30th annual, 31st. I'm going to be 35 years old. I'm a grown man. It was time for me to kind of retire from that and, uh, and move on. And I was willing to make that sacrifice. I probably could have snuck into the top 10, maybe a few more times, but it was time for me to change roles. And I was really honored to do that. And as time went by, some of the things that Buzz said about me, and I, 
the greatest compliment I ever received in life and anything I've ever been involved with. I heard him say to someone one time at one of the packet pickups, and was Buzz was in his 70s doing the events and all the pressure was off. He just picked up his number and got treated like the VIP was and he focused on his event. He said to someone else, he said, he pointed at me, he says, smartest thing I ever did was picking that guy as my successor. And I'm telling you, I just swelled with pride. I was hoping I would live up to his expectations. I was hoping. And me and, and, me and Buzz had some difference in philosophies. He came from an amateur era where he would take shoes. But if the company gave him money, he would send the money back to him. That was one of the deals back in the amateur age that you would get your shoes. There would be $100 bills rolled up inside the shoes if you made a national team or whatever. And most of the guys took them. And Buzz didn't. He didn't believe in that. And I'm not saying one guy was right and one guy was wrong. Buzz had this standard he lived by. I didn't. When a race director handed me an envelope at a race and I was a broke 20, whatever I was, I took the envelope and I shoved it in my back pocket, you know, which was not legal at the time to maintain your amateur status. Hopefully I won't get disqualified from the JFK, you know, <laughs> 40 years after the fact. But like many of the guys, when the rare occasions I got an envelope, I stuck the envelope in my pocket. Okay. I was broke. I was trying to make rent. And so me and Buzz had different philosophies on that. I was going to go seek sponsorship. I was going to go approach him. I was hoping to pay prize money because I knew it was going to take prize money to bring in the best athletes. The Boston Marathon was faced with that same dilemma. We, we've mirrored the Boston Marathon in many ways. Longevity, what we thought to overcome, going from amateur, not paying the athletes to paying them. And, and Buzz respected me on that. And he respected me. And I know I'm already grooming guys to take my spot. And, and they know. And what Buzz did, I did things a little different. He respected that. He told me, this is your race, and I'll honor whatever decisions you make, and I'm going to be the same way. You know, when the time comes for me to yield to a younger director, hey, you think what's best. I said, but whatever you do, and we talk about this at every race management meeting, the Saturday before Thanksgiving, 2062, if we are successful, they are having the 100th annual JFK. On the Saturday before Thanksgiving in 2062. And chances are most of us will not be here. The ones who were 60 and over, we're not going to be here. You 30-year-olds, hopefully you are. But we would like to be whatever your spiritual beliefs or whatever, that that thing goes on. When I rode my bike this morning by the JFK finish line to go meet my athletes, to ride my bike with my athletes. And every time I come by there, you know, I, I, I say a little prayer for Greg. He changed my life. Whose earthly remains are over there. His spiritual thing is gone, probably in Tokyo right now. You know, looking down over Chris and his athletes. But I, I think about that. You know that, and and it's just a road. It's just macadam there with a white line painted on it. But so many unbelievable stories have taken place there, and none of that happens without Buzz Sawyer doing what he did, and then him believing in me. This was like, why didn't you find some professional management group? Why did you pick some goofy kid that lived four blocks away from you that, you know, had a reputation for being a hothead and, you know, getting a little, I tell people I get a little emotional. Somebody, oh no, that guy's crazy. <laughs> but, but Buzz believed in him and Greg Shank believed in him. And my dad did too. You know, dads are supposed to do that. You know, when I was 12 years old and I told my dad, one day I'm going to win this race for the family. And I'm, I'm sure he's like, yeah, okay, kid, go ahead, you know. Yeah, you know, you can't fake genetics. Because my dad was probably looking at his five foot eight body going, 
sorry, kid, I gave you the wrong genetics, you know, for you to win this race. And Salazar said, you want to win the Boston Marathon? First and foremost, pick your parents very carefully. But my mom was five foot eight, which was a giant for a woman born in 1915. And her dad was a professional bicycle racer. He was a cardiovascular machine. So I was given those genetic gifts from my mother's side of the family. And my father, oh my gosh, I think you'd have to beat him with an aluminum baseball bat to get him to quit anything in his life. You know, he had that. So I was, I was very, I was gifted. I ran into Greg Shank. I ran into Terry Baker. A how many people have the chance to train with a guy who ends up being a top 10 finisher in the Boston Marathon that lives three miles away from you, who's a sub nine minute two miler, and you're a 10, 11, two miler, and you ask the guy if you can train with him, and he says, Yeah, sure, come on. I'm not going to slow down for you, but if you can keep up, you can train with me. All these things had to fall into place for me to be sitting in this chair right now telling you these stories. And I tell these kids all the time that I coach, gosh, it's just, you know, you can make your own luck in this world. You know, you didn't get lucky at the junior college championships, finishing eighth place against the Africans. Zane Iggy Chalker, this 19-year-old kid I'm coaching right now, that was not luck. All the NCAA Division I coaches who were recruiting knew that you don't luck into something like that. You, you take advantage of the circumstances around you, and you do the work. I was telling the guys this morning, when I was in junior college, we knew. It was the Salazar era. He was the same age as us. And we knew he was running 100 miles a week in high school. He wasn't the only one. A lot of guys were. And we're sitting in that room. You know, there's 21 guys in that room, and only seven of them are going to go on the start line at the National Cross Country Championship. So, you know, there's some guys you've got to beat down. And we're talking about it. And, um, and one of the guys was, a, was a, a, a smaller classification state champion. And we heard he was doing 30 miles a week. And we knew. He was going to be shipped to the goose real quick because he hadn't done the work. You know, you, you, you could have the genetics, you could have the good coaching, but if you weren't the guy grinding it out twice a day, three times a day, doing the 80, 90, 100 plus miles a week, it wasn't going to happen. You know, you could read every book, watch every video and uh, watch Brian's song 10,000 times and it wasn't going to happen for you. Had to be done. Simple as that. The work always must get done. Uh, the, the miles have to be grinded. The work has to be done. Um, I think what comes through a lot in all of what you're talking about, is not only from your running in your youth, um, to running as an older athlete and the race, all the transformation that's taken place is there's just a lot of gratitude. Um, you have massive appreciation for the people who helped you along the way, um, who impacted you personally. And, you know, now you're having the chance to do that, not only as the race director, of course, but also as a coach, you know, for your athletes, local in the community. And I've had a, had a bunch of uh, people on the show, like Laura, Lori Peretti Diamond and Shelby Molesky and, um, you know, people who are, you know, connected to the race and in the community and certainly who know you well and speak highly of you. And Devin and I have gotten to know each other you know, as the uh, technical race director. And, you know, it's just fun for me um, connecting with a race because I do, it's weird, but I see similarities between Boston and JFK. I don't know why, but I just did from the very beginning. So it was interesting that you brought that up um, because it is about tradition and the, the course doesn't change. Time changes. The athletes change, the runners change, the shoes on their feet change, the gels change, the weather 
gets better or gets worse. I mean, you know, it is what it is. The weather, you know, I ran in the monsoon, man. I'm proud of the fact that I ran in that monsoon. You ran in the JFK race where there was 83% DNF. So those races, they shape us for life, man. Those experiences, it isn't just the wins. It isn't just the time when we get to win the JFK or you run your PR, man. It's when you, when you get beaten down out there on the worst day. And, you know, you're literally questioning your sanity, <laughs> like, how am I going to keep going or I can't keep going, but then you get back up off the canvas, you get back up off the turf and you go again. And, you know, all the coaches who believed in you, your dad, um, other athletes who are willing to train with you, who maybe were a little faster. I think you're bringing that to your own athletes in the community. Certainly that's what I've heard. Um, and I'm sure that those athletes that you're coaching, you know, they know what you did. Sure. That's great. But they they believe that you're connecting with them and giving them a formula and a prescription that's going to work the way you believed in your coach. Ron, I got to tell you, you know, I get parents, these the athletes, they thank me. And I remember back when my dreams were coming true and I was starting to develop. And it was a guy named Gary Nog when Gary passed away just a few months ago. And Gary was the best marathon runner in the area. And I was so excited. My high school senior year, I went to the Washington's birthday marathon, February, my senior in high school, and I ran 253.07. I broke three hours and I nipped Park Bonner, the legendary Park Bonner who had won the JFK in 1972. And a week or so later, I was running with Gary. And Gary said to me, you can break 230. And that was no small thing. 230 was the Olympic trial standard at that time. 1972, the Olympic trial standard was 230 and this guy's telling me you can break 230 and that meant so much to me i was like this is the best guy in the area tell me that i can be better than him and he was right he was so right i mean i wrote him a note after that boston 82 i said gary you were right you were right and but then when you would i said i want to take you out for a steak dinner and they would get very very adamant don't do anything for us you turn around and you do it for the generation that follows you. Like we did it for you. That's how the village works. And I remember that. And I took that to heart. And, you know, it's still very important to me. I still, some of these guys who coached me have passed on. And the voices still echo in my head of do it for those guys. And I preach that to my kids too. I don't need you to buy me um, a jacket or a hat or have a plaque put up someplace. What I want you to do is to turn around and do this. And many of my former athletes now, gosh, I've been in it so long, are in their 40s and some of them in their 50s, and they're doing that. And that just makes me feel so good. And I got to tell you, my dad, when I was answering questions for the local TV and getting all this, he told me, he said, someday when you go into coaching, because I told him that's what I planned on doing, he says, you will find it much more rewarding than being an athlete yourself. My dad had been a longtime coach. And I thought, you got to be kidding, man. I had a little bit of ego. I love it when somebody comes up to me in the street and says, are you my experiment or newspaper reporter wants to interview me? How's being a coach going to be better than that? And you fast forward to 2007, and I coached a, wo a woman named Susan Graham Gray. I started coaching when she was 35 years old. She had Stargardt's disease. Like Marla Runyon, she was uh, legally blind. And she mainly, she needed male guides in most races. And so other times I would ride a bicycle behind her when she outran her male guide. I'd be able to point out potholes and so forth to a race directors. I'd get it okay. But couldn't do this at the Olympic trials. She was all on her own. So we knew that before. But she's trying to qualify for the Olympic trials, trying to qualify. She's 11 days short of her 39th birthday. She has three kids who are age seven or younger. 
And we go to the Pocono Mountain Run for the Red Marathon, and everything falls into place. And I got one of my 25-year-old male guys running with her. And with two miles to go, she gave me thumbs up. I got it. She can go seven-minute pace and get the qualifying standard. She ran 245, uh, 32, the standard then for the uh, 2008 Olympics was uh, 247. So she had it made. And Tim gave me the thumbs up. I rode my bike to the stadium. I finished inside a stadium on an old dirt track. I went to the back stretch. I went to the top row. That's normally where I watch track. I normally watch like and observe my athletes and their parents can't hear me cussing under my breath when I call them gutless wonders. So I do the same thing. I go to the top row and I sit up there and I watch her come into the stadium and go around. And I start weeping uncontrollably. A 30, 11 days short, a 39-year-old woman with three kids with Stargardt's disease just qualifies for the Olympic trials. And the media knew about it and is just waiting to engulf her at the finish line to hear the story that's going to go around the world. Blind woman wins marathon, breaks record, qualifies for the Olympic trials. And I looked up in the skies at my dad. I said, you were right, man. There's nothing better than seeing an athlete's dreams come true. And you had a small piece in that formula, you know? So it's, it's been a wonderful journey in this sport. And I'm trying to get long in a tooth, Ron. And I want to make sure my exit is at the right time. I, I really idolize Don Meredith. Well, why Don Meredith? I do a little radio work. And Don Meredith was this great broadcaster, Monday Night Football, household name, even years and years after his death, and years and years. And he left football at the very top of his game. He was the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. Walked when there's still a lot more left in the tank. Walked out of broadcasting when he was the top dude in that booth on the number one sports show in the world. He walked, did acting for a little bit, and then walked and quietly disappeared in the New Mexico desert with a nice, comfortable life. And he painted in the desert and enjoyed his twilight years. And I've looked at him on his graceful departures. And I still think I got a little juice. My running days, I've departed from that, you know, and, and the coaching and directing. And I'm hoping I have as half as good a timing as Don Meredith is that you leave at just the right time, that someone very, very capable slides in and takes your place. And you just kind of go off into the distance. And I did that a little bit this summer. I took five weeks and became invisible this summer. I went to the Olympic trials. I didn't coach. I didn't broadcast. I sat in the bleachers and hung out with people I did not know and enjoyed this amazing display of the human species, both physical and spiritual. And then I drove around the country a little bit with my wife and visited little towns where they didn't know who the hell my wife was, a former U.S. national team member. They didn't know her. They didn't know me. We met these amazing people. And I got a little taste of what Don Meredith must have experienced when he kind of quietly disappeared. But I came back after five weeks. And one of the things was that, is I really thought maybe it's time, maybe this is my time to make that transition. But I got a text. I got this 19-year-old I'm coaching right now. I mean, God was in a really good mood the day he put this guy's body together. He is a freak of nature. And he can be really special. And his mother texted me and she asked, are you going to come back home? David needs you. And I was like, I'll be home in a few weeks, you know? So, you know, so, 
and it's nice to be needed. And she, and then somebody else even said to me, another 15 year old kid I'm working with her. She said to me, we need you to come home. And it's always good to come back to a place that you call home. And that kind of hit me too, because, you know, I joke with some of my athletes when I walked off, you know, June 10th, I climbed to my van and I said, if I don't come back, you know, you do this, you do that. You have the knowledge. Some of you are in your forties, you know, you can do what I do. If I have a cardiac arrest on my bike today, I don't want you sitting here tooling yourself. What do we do now? Well, you know how to do this. It's in place to keep going, but I still love it so much. And uh, man, I got to tell you, nothing, nothing makes you forget about being old than to see the world through a 20 year old's eyes. Who's like coming out of your two year school and deciding which division one four year school is going to go to, you know, all of a sudden you, you know, it takes you back to that. And it's almost like seeing a kid on Christmas morning. You know, it's not as exciting for a 60 year old guy on Christmas morning, but when you see a young kid experiencing in that, you go, Oh, you remember how priceless it was. And it's out there and it's happened all the time. My wife does a fantastic job of coaching the local Catholic high school. And she had a kid show up and you mentioned Shelby Molesky. It's Shelby Molesky's son, Jack. He's 14 years old and Jack's trying to figure it out. And you know, what mom and dad are doing sometimes isn't the coolest thing, but Jack's going to do cross country because he knows me and he, he knows coach Paz, the car. My wife's maiden name was Pazarentos when she was on the U S national team. And he shows up and we talked about much like the student, your success depends much more on what you do outside the classroom than what it does in an athlete depends much more on what you do with this hour of practice. We have four times a week. Your success depends on what you do with outside of practice. He can't wait to tell us that he ran five miles on mom's treadmill and they knocked it off in 44 minutes and change. And I looked at that kid and I went, it's, it's already, he's already caught in fire. You know, he already understands the correlation between training and performance. And it's Jack's time. He's 14 years old. He's got the whole freaking world in front of him and everything's a possibility, you know, and it, that's just absolutely you can't put a price on that. I had a former Olympian. I'm at the junior college nationals, and I had a 19-year-old kid out of a local high school, small, one of the smallest schools in the, in, the, in the state. And he's out there, and he's running against a guy named Iliad Najubi from Dodge City. Iliad Najubi was a sub-four-minute miler who was kicking the crap of the guys from Colorado's ass the year they wrote, uh, wrote the book, Running with the Buffaloes. That season, Iliad Najubi was beating Adam Goucher and the guys from Colorado. Well, Eliad Najubi is running the indoor junior college championships and his coach is trying to maximize his point output. So he's winning races, but not winning them by much. We made a tactical error in the last lap of the 5,000. He didn't realize the kid that I was coaching. I stole him off the baseball field and he could steal second base anytime he wanted because he had speed. He could pop 27 seconds at the end of any workout at the end of any run. And that's what we planned on. Last lap, you go 27 seconds. Eliad Najubi was probably not planning on that kid doing it with the confusion with lap laps. My kid beats him by the time he realized that the guy blowing by him wasn't a lap runner. It's too late. My kid wins the national championship. The crowd is going freaking bananas. A skinny little kid from Clear Spring, Maryland, just beat Iliad and Juby to win the national junior college championship. This is the year 2000. And he's taken, they make him take a victory lap. It's in a Kansas State University. They make him take a victory lap. He's slapping hands. And Eliad was so gracious. He knew he screwed up, never made a mistake, you know, never say, oh, never said, oh, I screwed up. 
totally gracious. And I'm sitting there and this former Olympic coach, George Young is his name, bronze medalist, 1968. He says to me, he knows my nickname too, Pink. He says, Pink, this moment for $2 million in a pile of cash right there, what are you taking? I said, George, I, that, I, I would take that moment. That, you know, he says, and he nodded his head. That's, that's what coaching is when you see that. And that, 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 that 19-year-old kid is now on my JFK race management staff. And I make sure I tell that story. Everybody said, this is the guy, Reed, running with the Buffaloes. Find Iliad the Juvie mentioned in that book from Dodge City. He goes, he beat Iliad the Juvie to win the 2000 NJCA Division I indoor 5,000 meters. I said, and what does Tim do? Tim goes on to coach and his sister coaches, and they all are doing it, passing on these the great stories. And, you know, and, and it just continues the role. It continues to go. I'm sitting here watching the Olympics and Grant Fisher gets fifth place in the 10,000 meters. And five years ago, I'm sitting in Tracktown Pizza, hanging out with Bob Cole. Bob was third place to me in the JFK in 1983. And his wife, Laura Lamena Cole. And they're sitting, Laura's talking to one of her college teammates from the University of Arizona. It's Grant Fisher's mother. Grant Fisher's 19 years old. He's playing video games at the kids' table with my two sons and Laura's daughter. Here he is. Now, he was good. He was 19 years old, finished up his freshman year at Stanford. Five years later, he's making the freaking Olympic team and finishing fifth right in the mix when the sprinting happens. He went 13.38 for the second 5,000. I'm going, it goes on and on. The same city where Bob Scholl sent a generation of generations of athletes. He almost pulled off the Bob Scholl. And he ain't done. I mean, uh, excuse me. Bob Scholl won the 5,000. Of course, Billy Mills won the 10,000. Reason I'm thinking Bob Schull is he's coming back in the 5,000. Bob Schull won the 5,000, and Grant Fisher's got that chance. 24 years old, you know, the, and I'm sure he heard mom's stories growing up and the whole deal. But I'm thinking to myself, we're watching this guy kicking with the Ugandans and the Ethiopians and the Kenyans, and he was at the kids' table playing video games with our with our kids five years ago. So it's just beautiful to watch this stuff happen and who he's inspired. My guys are running the next day. They're doing, Grant Fisher did this. He went 55 for the last lap. If he could close in 53s on the podium. And I'm going, here he is. He doesn't realize it. He's inspiring thousands of young upstarts around the country, you know? And it's just really cool for me to watch this stuff go. And, and to see and have them realize it. Katie Lodecki, who's from Maryland, from Bethesda. I live at 6429 Ken Howe Drive in Bethesda from 1960 to 1968, a girl from my community is being recognized as one of the greatest community. And she got on, and I don't know who was interviewing her, and but she felt this great sense of it was her duty to inspire that 15-year-old girl from Las Vegas who got fourth in the, in the 800 tour. And she feels very, very, that that's a very important thing. That's what she's doing. And I'm like, gosh, who does that sound like? That's Jerry Lindgren. When Jerry Lindgren beat the Russians, he said the only reason he did it is you're trying to inspire the world to what you could do, not just as a runner or an athlete, but maybe as a research scientist or whatever it is. I just It just makes me feel so good when there's people out there that realize that they inspire. I'm coaching a 42-year-old gal right now. She's a, an immigrant from Slovakia, and she's trying to get better. She's with me because she thinks I can help her get better, but I'm going to her. I'm saying, Yana, you don't realize the people you are inspiring, you're a single mother 
of a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old, and you got eighth place in the JFK. These people worship you. They think that you are something special, and you are. But And I don't want you to feel a burden on your shoulders, but I want you to feel good about that, that when you go out each day and you do what you do, that you're inspiring someone to do something. You know, And maybe it's that woman who, doggone it, she's tired of being 300 pounds, and she's going to do something about it. She's going to get out, and she's going to start changing her life, whatever it is. But who, who inspired Kennedy? Teddy Roosevelt. Who did Kennedy inspire? A whole hell of a lot of people. Right on the shirt you're wearing, what does it say? Ask not what your country can do. Rather, ask what you can do for your country. So it's good stuff. It's a pleasure for me to be on your show, Ron, because I like what you're doing. You're inspiring people. When you had Lori Diamond on, on that show, Lori Diamond helped us win the silver medal as a master's women's team at the Boston Marathon. One of the grandest moments in the history of our club, our little Cumberland Valley Athletic Club out of Hagerstown, Maryland, population 69,000, whatever it is. Lori Diamond is one of those people. And Lori's finally accepted it. It's like, yeah, Lori, they look up to you, girl. These people look up to you. And when I told little Jack at practice, then said, Jack, the woman picking up from practice here, she qualified for the Boston Marathon. She finished the JFK 50 mile in less than 10 hours. Your mama gave you some pretty good genetics, young man. <laughs> and he's like nodding his head. First of all, he's like, oh, my gosh, my mom and dad are the two most uncool people in the world. You know, like most 14-year-olds. But maybe Jackson might be a little cooler than what you think she is. Lori's a baller, man. You don't want to mess with her. Don't, don't ask her to run. Don't try to take her out in a 24-hour race, man. You'll lose. 306 in the marathon after the age of 40. Yeah. On Boston Hills. Now, she's amazing. She is absolutely amazing. And I tell you, we, uh, she trained with another girl I coached, the girl I told you about that qualified for the Olympic trials legal. And she did a lot of running with her, Lori being Lori, helping her out. Susan couldn't run outside without a guide. So they became training partners. Neither of them weighed a hundred pounds. I called them team peanuts. We, my mother always called a real little girl. Oh, she's just a peanut. And that was my team peanut. They were, I had so much fun coaching those two gals. They would just get the most out of each other in the workouts. You know, Lori had this amazing endurance and Susan had a nice little bit of foot speed and they worked out together. And it was so much fun for me to coach Team Peanut back in the day. And every time I see Lori, she loves when I bring up that reference. She loves when, so if you ever run into her, say, I heard you used to be on Team Peanut, she'll get a big smile on her face. Oh, no, no doubt. And I reached out to all of them before we uh, came on today because, you know, they're big fans. And, um, you know, the whole the CVAC thing that you got going there is just super cool, um, the connection and um, inspiring others. You know, that's kind of why I started the show. I mean, just, you know, the stories you share with running, and I have to share one with you because you've shared some amazing gems. But um, the stories we share as runners on a run are very different. You know, it's like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I mean, you talk about your wife or your husband or your boss or, you know, just shit that you're maybe is not always politically correct, but you know, it's safe, man. You're just on a run and you're just talking about life. And, um, one of my, uh, training partners, obviously not on her hard days, only on her dog slow days when she just needed to get out and, you know, get the, get the miles in and knew that I was always available to grind the miles. 
is Kate Powerty from up in New York, you know, in Central Park. And Kate would say to me, come on, man, you got to run like, you know, I don't know, like 14 with me this morning. I'm like, man, I just ran like 16 last night. Just, what are you, soft, man? Come on, man, just show up. We're not going to run hard. Like, it didn't matter how many miles I did the day before or the night before. Kate's just like, you got to show up, right? So, I mean, Kate's like, you know, when I talked to her before JFK, I knew she was fit. And I'm like, so, you know, like, what are your goals? Like, you're talking about, she was I think I can win. And I'm like, really? You think you can win? And she's like, yeah, I think I can win. And I remember that's the year they had the snow on the AT. Well, I'm sure you had many years, but that particular year was a rough year, you know, in terms of particularly on the AT. And I mean, she was just so far down, you know, coming off the AT. And, you know, I mean, she (laughs) made it happen, man. I mean, as the race director, obviously you were there in the lead vehicle and all that. What was was that race like that day for you, man? Because, uh, I mean, we were just so proud of her, man. Just unbelievably proud of her and her stepping up and coming through and winning that thing, man. You know, you, you gotta, if you like your referee, okay, race director, it's very difficult because you get to know some of these athletes and you like them and you root for them, but you've got to create a evil, an even playing field and you got to sit back and watch it happen. I, I developed a very close relationship with Mike Wardian and, and, and Mike, Mike did win JFK 2007, but in that war with Dave Riddle in 2011, when they finally took down Eric Clifton's record, which had stood for 17 years. And many people are starting to think, wow, you know, that's a really good record. We're starting to get 215 guys and they're not taken down. But Mike and Dave Riddle were going at it. And in my heart, I got to tell you, how can I not root for Mike? I mean, I got Mike into ultras. Mike, you know, I talked to him into JFK. I said, if you win JFK, it'll probably get you on the 100K team. You'll get a USA uniform. And him and Riddle were just grinding it. But you have to kind of sit back and separate yourself but man, when you're watching it happen, sometimes you sit back there and you just tear up. Eric Sensman wanted so bad to win the JFK, so bad to win that race. And I knew it. And one year he dropped out and he helped us out at the finish line with broadcasting, giving us background on some of the elite athletes and stuff like that. And I really fell in love with the guy. I mean, he was just a gem. Him and uh, Ian, 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 uh, you know, uh, Ian with the race, Ian, unbelievable. You know, these guys wanted to win the race so bad. It came so close. When Eric won it in 2017, his emotion poured out of him in that last straightaway and at the finish line. And when I said to him, welcome to the club, man. I mean, I've never got a squeeze like that before. And every time I communicate with him, I always call him the 2017 JFK. 50 mile champion. And when he was in the elite vehicle doing the commentating earlier this year, um, when they were trying to break the, uh, the world record at 100 kilometers, Jim Walmsley was right on the bubble doing it. And it's him in there. And I'm thinking to myself, that's our guy, man. You know, and he helped us with broadcasting too. But this, to see those dreams come true. And, and even like, you know, with, with, with Ian, and he came so, so, so close. And he got second place. In 2004, Paul South wins the race. Who the hell is Paul South? It was his first race, I think, not even a marathon. I think it was his first race longer than 10K. And he comes out of nowhere and he wins the thing. And he just, you know, it looked like Ian was going to be him. And then South came back on him. And South had four or four mile speed and put him away in the last mile. And I just felt so bad. What do you say to him? And I told him, I said, like Boston, Tom Fleming came so close in second. You're our Tom Fleming. And then a couple of years later, Ian's wife wins the race and he coaches her and he gets her through. 
And I knew he, he was like that coach thing. You know what? You were part of that gold medal, man. You were part of it. But that is just so cool. But I, but it's, it's the two dreams at both ends. You know, at the front, you see these people, you know, achieve this dream that they've had for years. And then the back end, and you see some 50-some-year-old woman who's been through a bad divorce and life has turned to crap. And she decided the jam is something she's going to do to prove to herself. And she does it. And you sit there and cry at the finish line with her because that's extraordinary. I mean, that is extraordinary. And we throw the, you know, we throw that number out. I, I love that they, one of the commentators said it's one and three quarters of a million of people that's an Olympian. You do the math, there's 11,000 people, almost 8 billion. One out of three quarters and of a million people is an Olympian. With the JFK and 50 mile foot bases, period. Only one, less than one-tenth of one percent of our population has ever finished a 50-mile foot race. So just by crossing that finish line, you throw yourself into this elite group of our species. And I'm telling you, I, everybody, our announcers who are exhausted, volunteers who have been at it for 15, 18 hours, some of these people without sleeping, just go and like, and we don't even know these people. We don't know them. We just know their spirit and their heart. And they'll cross the finish line and thank us for being there for so many hours. And we're like, you're thanking us? We, you just gave us the moment that'll fuel us through another year of dealing with all the hoops we have to jump through, all the difficulties we have to get across to make the race worthwhile. And nobody who's ever seen that finish line has ever said, you know what, maybe the JFK has seen enough time and we should retire the event. No. Anybody you see that says somehow, some way, the generations have to carry this forward. And we feel real good about that. Buzz, Buzz, he could sense, he could sense my passion for the event that I would not let it die, even more than I did. Even more than me, he sensed that. And, you know, the race management that we have right now is just absolutely phenomenal. There's one other name that I want to bring up in this you know, before you have to cut me off because I talk too much. But there was a picture taken on a local newspaper 40 years ago. And it was Greg Shank. He was coaching three athletes at the time. The great Terry Baker, American record holder at 50 mile, 15, 15 miles, won five miles. Me, who was trying to get ready for the DFK. I hadn't won it yet. But I had made an international team at 36 miles. And then a guy named Jeff Scuffins, who was the junior college national three-mile champion. Jeff was 19. I was 23. And Terry Baker was 26, and Greg was 31 when this picture was taken. They came across, you know, Facebook is always time bringing stuff through. It came through just the other day. Greg died Christmas time, 2018. Scuff died suddenly, um, 58 years old, earlier this spring. And we were the four. It was Greg guiding us to our dreams. All three of us, there was no jealousy involved. We were all trying to help each other get to our dreams. Scuff trying to get the Division I scholarship. Terry Baker trying to win a major, which he did. Terry Blossom, 10 miler, me trying to win the JFK. We all had our dreams and our goals. Well, two of those four guys are gone now. And Scuff never married. He never had any children. But Greg did. Greg had, Greg had a daughter. And when a few days after Scuff passed away, she reached out to me and Terry. And she said, it's just you two now. You need to take care of each other. And me and Terry, Terry got involved with politics, and we communicate a little bit, but our lives have gone vastly different separations. Right. I was going to go out to the Indy 500 and do a little media work, and I had an extra ticket. And I said, Terry, do you want to go to the Indy 500 with me? No hesitation. No, I got to judge my schedule. No, I got to be there for this meeting. He's a local county commissioner. I'm going. And over those four days and three nights, and my son Jimmy was with us, 
it was just like, you know, just recommitment. You know, Greg and, and Scuff live on through us, but man, you know, every day is precious and those memories are unbelievable. And, you know, it's our turn to kind of take each and, and take advantage of each one of those days. And, you know, it was, um, you know, if the good Lord calls me home today, not tomorrow, because Baker's always one, there is one, he can, we call Bakerism. So he has these, we knew he was going to go into politics because he had this unique way, a country boy way of looking at things. And he would say these things that seem so stupid. And all of a sudden you listen to, that's not stupid. That's genius. And the old saying is, you're here today, gone tomorrow. He says, no, you're here today, gone today. The day you pass will be a day you were also there. And, uh, and he, he, he just had this great knowledge. So it's been a great ride along the way. I hope I still have a few more days in it. The JFK, I can tell you, is going to be there for generations. And uh, mark your calendars now for the third Saturday in November 2062 for the 100th annual JFK 50-mile. Legacy, man. That's what it's all about. Um, yes, it is. And passing on the lessons we've learned, um, you know, learning from coaches, teachers, athletes, younger, younger people, people that are younger than us that are doing it differently or different, better, man. It's, if we're not learning in life, what are we doing it for, man? That's what it's about. Evolving, learning, and then passing on and sharing the wisdom and all that good stuff. And as far as like breaking the tape and finishing the JFK, whether you're last, like you're talking about with the reflective vest on, which I had, cause you know, I was 11 and change, or I don't even know what my time was, 10, 10 hours and something, whatever it was, I took a hard fall I had had a bad bike crash, you know, raising money for uh, Tommy Rivers Poozy. I got hit by a cyclist going the wrong way in Central Park late at night um, and had a bad concussion. So I probably shouldn't have even been out there, but I wasn't missing that race. Um, it was my opportunity to get out there, raise some more money for Tommy Rivers, and, you know, to get a chance to run in the course where my friend Kate Powerty won the goddamn race, man. I mean, she beat Casey Licktig, who's won Western States. I mean, she was, I think she was like nine minutes down when she got off the AT. And that's a lot against somebody of Casey's, uh, ability. And I just remember her, t you know, telling me that you were on the back of the truck yelling at her, you know, like what her splits were and yelling at her and stuff. And, you know, Kate is as tough as they come, man. I mean, she is just one of these people who just, she lives in that moment, man. Like she'll train till the blood is coming out of her nails and she's as, she's as tough as they come, man. I'll take her against Goggins and she knows Goggins. No one's tougher. But she won that race and it was- I, I got to tell, I got to tell, tell you this. So was, you know, you say what, what happens on a run stays on a run. Yeah. Well, this podcast is probably going to be heard by a few people. Okay. But let me just tell you a story about Kate. We normally, Andy Mason is a, one of my athletes. who's twice in the top 10 of the JFK. He's the sports editor of our local newspaper. Andy handles most elite athletes. I let him heal them, deal with them. And he normally has this thing. He'll come to me and we have different incentive plans. And sometimes it'll be, you pay the entry fee. And if you finish in a certain place, we're going to give you that prize money and your entry feedback. Pay on performance if you feel so strongly. Well, she reaches out to me and she says, I'm going to win the race. <laughs> yes. I the race. And I'm going, man, I like that because that's the way I. So I told her a deal. I said, you know, I'm a businessman too. I'm going, you pay the entry fee. You win the race. You're going to get the first place check and we'll hand you the prize money right back there on the spot. And that's where she, and I hope that incentivized her. So we didn't say top three, top six, top 10. We told her, you win the race. And we had never done that before. And I just kind of, you know, said to Andy, I said, we'll see how, how serious she is about winning this race. And sure enough, 
she came through and it was a solid field. I mean, it was a very good field. And she was known for triathlon, you know, and she kind of treated the race as a triathlon. You know, the three segments of the race, the mountains, the towpath, the road. And she got stronger in each segment. And I'm telling you, she was, and I hand, I, I fulfilled my promise. I handed the winner's check and I gave her entry feedback. And that was an amazing story. Amazing race. I love that you remember that. Um, oh, no, I'll never forget that. Yeah. But I got to tell my, my, and you don't know. And I, and I, I coached teenagers, 20s, 30s, straight up the ladder. And I tell these people, when you start getting good, and not even when you get good, you never know when you think you're good. You might not think you're good, but there's somebody who looks up to you. The smallest thing you do or say to somebody will make a difference. I finished sixth place in the Tri-State League conference. I'm a junior. I'm 16 years old. I finished sixth place. I ran 10, 16.3 for two miles. Don't stop the presses. Don't call the college coaches. They don't go, you know, I'm sixth place in the conference championship. Who's time in sixth place that day? Westminster high school guy named Jim Shank was the meet director. He had run for the CVAC. He needed some people at the finish line. He calls Buzz Sawyer. Buzz, can you time at my finish line? We'll give you an easy job. You time sixth place. Nobody cares who's sixth. So he's getting my name and telling me my time to record it like they did old school. And he looked at me and he says, if you go longer, you're going to be a lot better. And I'm like, I knew who he was. I said, Buzz Sawyer just told me if I go longer, I'll be better. And I had already told my dad five years earlier, four years earlier, that I was going to win the JFK. And Buzz Sawyer just said that to me. Something about me or my stride or something, or maybe how I wasn't as beat up as the other guys after two miles. And in his mind, he might have been thinking the six mile in college, not 50 miles. But he said that to me, and I can close my eyes and see the white jacket he was wearing. And like me, he wore a baseball hat that covered his balding head. And he, he, I mean, the stuff that you say that you don't realize is big is massive in people's lives, you know? Yeah. So, Sure it is, Mike. And, um, you know, like that conversation you had with Kate, you know, she just believes in herself. She's willing to outwork people. And she didn't have a lot of ultra experience, to your point. She'd done a bunch of marathons, uh, but she's just willing to grind and do the hard work. And at the end of the day, what mattered to her most was breaking that tape. I mean, I think that's the happiest pictures I've ever seen in my life of her breaking that tape. And that beautiful trophy, that amazing, beautiful trophy, her husband threw a surprise party for her, which is awesome. All her friends came. That beautiful trophy's in their country house, like in a closet somewhere, because that's Kate. She doesn't, the performance was that day. It was going to battle with Casey and the other great runners and getting off the snowy AT and being upright. And then, you know, grinding each section, just as you said, like section two on the gravel and getting to the roads where she dug in and pulled it off. But yeah, man, it's been amazing. You told some unbelievable stories, man. You've lived a hell of a life, my friend, a hell of a life. Impressive. And you made a huge impact, um, not only as a runner, as an athlete, certainly as a coach and as a race director. And uh, it's been so fun getting to know you today. And I can't wait to get this thing uh, published and out there to share, you know, on my podcast channels and hopefully the video will hold up for YouTube as well. And, uh, we can have this bad boy memorialized, man. Cause it's been super fun chatting with you, man. You too, Ron. I can't wait to see you in person, man. Okay. 
Yeah, well, you know, uh, you better hold one spot for me. And if, if all, the, all the applications are gone, you better hold one on the side for me, man, because I got to come back down and I got I to gotta do my second one this year. We're going to come after it with a little more vigor this year for sure. So, Well, the elite athlete coordinator is a real good friend of mine. He lives about uh, eight blocks away. I'll make sure he saves an elite spot for you. <laughs> no, no, no. Put me in the back, dude. I don't want any, <laughs> we don't want any elite spot pressure, but I appreciate man. I look forward to it. And I'm going to come down a couple of days early because I just want to get a chance to maybe take you and, and Devin and some of the other people on your team out for a lunch, a dinner, a couple of beers, because it's just been a, a great experience getting to know you all. Um, and just want to continue and continue building it and having guests on, you know, on the show to keep promoting what JFK is doing because it's super fun. So we have a standard way we close out, Mike. I tell everybody because we're always trying to inspire people to get up off the couch. We tell them to keep lacing them up, to keep getting out the door. And that sign behind me there says, always remember to stay in the fight. Wow. Bravo, Mike Spindler. Thank you for sharing so many amazing, great stories. You've lived a huge life. You've made incredible contributions as a runner, as a race director, and a coach in your community, and obviously to your family, to your wife, Maria, and your kids. Um, you're just such uh, a staple in that community there and such an important figure and beloved by so many. And it was such a treat for me to get to know you and spend some time with you uh, on this podcast and, and recording it for video. We'll have to get it up on YouTube as well. And I can't tell you how much I look forward to meeting you down at the JFK 50 this year. I hope you all enjoyed Mike's incredible stories, man. He certainly had a way of bringing us out there and to all of those races and the events surrounding them and made you feel like you were a part of it, which is just such a gift in life. So I hope you all get that sense and flavor. And if you um, come away with that same feeling as I did, please take a moment to share on Instagram stories, on Facebook, with your local running groups and community. It really helps us find new followers to the program, get new listeners to the program, and ultimately leads us to getting more great guests like Mike Spindler. So it really has an impact on our show. So please, if you can, take a moment to go on Apple Podcasts, write a quick review. It really, really helps us out. And as I've threatened the past couple of weeks. I've got some really cool swag coming in. So if I know you've written a super positive review or shared an Instagram or Facebook, I'll do my best to get you some swag out. A hat, a hoodie, a coffee mug, something with the uh, the Run Chats with Ron Runs NYC uh, info going on. So thank you all for being part of our community. Thank you, Mike Spindler, for sharing so many inspiring stories with us. And as we say at the end of every episode, keep lacing them up, my friends. Keep getting out the door. And always remember to stay in the fight. Peace out, my friends. <laughs>